Hello there, and thank you for joining for another episode of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this podcast, we hear from authors of newly released books on Turkey and the region. Give our Facebook page a like and or follow the Twitter account at Turkey Book Talk. Check out show notes and links at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com. And please do rate or review the podcast wherever you listen to it, which really helps more people find it. Remember, if you haven't already, do consider signing up to become a Turkey Book Talk member for exclusive extras and to help us keep going. Joining our growing list of sign up members gets you transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on Turkey Book Talk via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, which so far amounts to over 80 conversations and which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also get access to an exclusive discount deal, a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. IB Taurus, which is now part of Bloomsbury, has well over 400 books in its Turkey and Ottoman history series, including both academic and general interest titles. Turkey Book Talk members receive a special code for a 35% discount on books in that series, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Last but not least, members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, covering various categories including Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics, journalism, the Middle East and Europe. That archive was written over the course of five years and was previously available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. To become a member, all you have to do is pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's official Patreon account. New episodes go out every two weeks, so the monthly membership price is no more than $6. Of course, if you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. Members only get charged when a new episode is published, so there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now, on with our latest episode. In it, we speak to Ruben Silverman. If you're familiar with Turkey, you may be familiar with his blog. It's a treasure trove of very detailed articles on various aspects of contemporary Turkish history, politics and culture. He's compiled and expanded some of those pieces in two books so far, both published by Libra, which are also worth checking out. We spoke a couple of weeks ago, so a few weeks after the local election and after the dust had settled somewhat on the campaign and the results. That election predictably saw President Erdogan's ruling alliance win the largest share of the vote, but perhaps less predictably, it also saw the main opposition's mayoral candidates winning all of Turkey's three biggest metropolitan cities, including Mansur Yavaş in Ankara and Ekrem İmamoğlu in Istanbul. I should actually give a caveat here. We spoke before the Supreme Election Board's decision about whether to accept the ruling AKP's demand to rerun the election in Istanbul so in fact the dust had not actually properly settled on the election and the first part of this conversation may or may not be out of date by the time you hear it also that decision has still not been made as I record this intro now so I'm also in the dark about what will happen at this point but anyway I started by asking Ruben Silverman to reflect on the election campaign the results and the aftermath I think the best way to think about the local elections, let's say, let's start with in Istanbul first and then maybe think a little bit broader. But in Istanbul, I think the question that's really worth asking is beyond just it being a protest vote, what might a change of leadership at the municipal level mean for people? And where can we actually look at in order to come up with an answer that makes sense to that question? So a guy like a, a guy like a Mamalu, who I think for most people came out of nowhere to win. I think for most people, 
people, Imam Lu wasn't someone on their radar, wasn't a person who anyone had heard about before he was nominated for mayor. And so for most people watching the elections, he seems like a, he seems like a fresh, a fresh face. He seems a good standard bearer for center left values in Turkey. But when you look closer at him, as I've written about, I think some of that, that shine falls away a little bit. He's from an outlying borough in Istanbul, and he comes from a family that's a uh, in the construction industry, uh, real estate developers. And so, what you end up asking yourself is, does this political figure offer something different than the, let's say, Akpe model of government that's been in place for almost twenty five years now? And on a pu- on a purely material level, looking at his background, looking at his interests, looking at his career, it's very hard to see the places where he differs significantly. So for your average person living in Istanbul, it really, I think it remains an open question, what will come of Imamoglu becoming mayor and being mayor? Will an Imamoglu administration actually change anything about people's daily lives that'll make them satisfied with the vote? Or is the satisfaction purely coming from having voted against the ruling party, having shown that people still have the choice if they want to vote one way or the other? Uh, that to me really is an open question. And I think we'll have to see going forward. But I think one important way to think about it is by you know, looking at his early policies, looking at who he appoints to various uh, municipal bo- bodies that he does have some authority over, and just seeing if some of the big projects of the AKP year, years in, of Istanbul governance, if those projects continue along as they had before, or if there's some way in which the criticisms that you heard from various sectors of these projects if they are answered by a new administration. And um, I could give you two examples, if you like. One that occurs to me is uh, the Fikirpetepe developments in, in, the, in Kadakoy, which are, you know, they've received huge amounts of complaint over the years about, you know, in terms of people being kicked out of their homes or not being found homes that they're satisfied with, the way the construction is progressing, something like that. Or similarly, say the Tarlabashi renewal process, uh, project in, in central Istanbul off of Taksim Square. Again, you, ha- you hear lots of people being dissatisfied with the pace of the project, the way it's been done. Projects of this sort, which are their development projects, their projects to improve the city. I think it'll be very interesting to follow how these develop under a non-AKP administration. I think watching that process will be very telling as far as whether this has been a change to have a new face in Istanbul politics or whether it's similar. Another question that's arisen uh, since the vote is uh, the divide between the uh, municipal mayor, so in Istanbul, in Mamolu, uh, and the municipal council, where the opposition uh, or the CHP and its allies don't have a majority. And uh, there's been a few reports, I think there was one came out today, uh, suggesting that uh, one formula that the AKP is looking at is pushing through some kind of legal changes that would basically give a lot more authority to the municipal councils, which would basically act as a kind of block on anything that uh, a mayor of a metropolitan municipality would try to do. Uh, I mean, what's your reading? Do you think that kind of step would be likely or and if so, you know, how much of an effect would that have? 
I think you touched on one of the, to me, most important aspects of these elections that hasn't been discussed enough, which is that even though the CHP won in places across the country in more races than it's won in in many years, even in the places that it won, even in the places that won mayorships, it doesn't control the city, the city councils or the provincial councils. It doesn't have that type of authority. So it does have a lot of these situations, not just in Istanbul, but many other places too, where it either controls uh, plurality of the government, uh, of the council, or far less than that. And so I really think that legislation like you're mentioning is exactly the sort of way in which the uh, national government can still retain a lot of control of the municipal level in which I'm very uh, skeptical of how much change can actually be enacted by a lot of these elected mayors, especially since so many of the victories do seem to be the pro- the product of you know frust- frustration among voters, coalitions created by the CHP to get just enough of the vote in order to win in these various districts. That once the election's over and you're back to the, the politics of actually governing these provinces, governing these cities, I, I, will, I will be very curious to see if precisely at this point is, is where the trouble is, people is run into. Uh, now, just taking a step back, really, I think uh, it's uh, it would be nice actually to just um, talk a bit more broadly about your own work. I mean, I think people with any familiarity with Turkey really should already, already be aware of your blog. I mean, if they aren't, then they should uh, get acquainted with it. And uh, you've clearly, you know, plunged yourself deep into the work. But uh, really, let's go back a few years, I suppose. I mean, how was your uh, interest first peaked, really, in Turkey? I mean, was it a study or a visit, or or how did how did you get started down this path? I, after university, um, I, you know, I, I wanted to see the world. And so I did what a lot of people did. I got an English teaching certification, came to Turkey, started looking for work. Uh, so I first came here in uh, 2007. I first came to Turkey, lived here for a year, went back to the States, came back to Turkey again, went back to the States, uh, went to China, taught English, finally came back here, settled down for a while and taught English for a few more years. And during that time, like like anybody living here, I think you start to just develop an interest in Turkey and develop an interest in what's going on around you. And personally, I often had experiences where I would be seeing graffiti on walls or posters in people's houses, let's say, and I'd wonder who these people were, what the symbolism behind them was, and I'd have a great deal of trouble from either, you know, foreign or Turkish friends getting a a real sense of what these symbols meant. Uh, I think the first time this happened, maybe, was seeing lots of uh, Deniz Gezmish pictures everywhere and wondering who this guy was. And, you know, people would tell you, oh, he's a young radical, he represents left-wing enthusiasm, this type of thing, or he was killed and it was a tragedy, or whatever. People would have a general sense of him, right? But they wouldn't have a sense of his biography. They wouldn't have a sense of how he actually existed as a historical figure. And so I found that even looking at Turkish sources as well, there wasn't necessarily a good article uh, that did this. So in instances like that, and in other instances too, I just figured, well, if I can't find this anywhere else, I'd like to know it myself. And if I'm going to spend the time learning about this topic, it's might as well share what I find with other people. So that's the genesis of my interest in Turkey, just trying to find topics that that I know are interesting to me, and I hope are interesting to other people, and just haven't been touched on to the degree I, I'd hoped for. And the blog, did it start as a kind of sketch pad, or was it more of a serious thing from the start? I mean, what was, did, did you start that in Turkey, or was that started elsewhere? It, 
was it was started here, and I I started writing blog things for it maybe nine years ago. And the first few things I wrote, I can't say I'm very proud of looking back on them. They were very uh, you know general things about uh, the first thing I wrote was around the time of the uh, referendum, which you know seemed interesting. It seemed a good time to reflect on what was going on in Turkey. And that was about 2010. Uh, and in 2012 14, to 14, I went back to graduate school in the United States, got a degree, a, a master's degree in international studies, and wrote about Turkish politics uh, for my degree and uh, business political relations. So when I finally came back to Turkey in 2014, I had this no- a good degree of knowledge built up so I could sit down and think about things a little more analytically. And so that was perfect timing for uh, when, say, like the Gezi Park protests happened, when um, the falling out between the government and the Gulenist movement happened in late 2013 and when the municipal elections happened back in 2014. And so all those events happening all at the same time really were a good opportunity to start, you know, you know applying the, the skills I'd been able to develop to some of these topics. And uh, in particular, the first thing I wrote that I remember being you know, particularly satisfied with that I hope people have a chance to see is about Mustafa Saragul and his campaign in 2014 and the 2014 municipal elections. Because again, just like Danny's just like many of these other figures, you'd hear the name, you'd hear about how he's a very important figure, but you wouldn't get a larger sense of how this person had gotten to where they were, how this person fit into a, a larger political um, environment than just, oh yeah, here's the guy who's running for mayor. And so in the case of Sargula, I went out, bought his uh, campaign biography, read it, and then used that as a springboard to think more, more generally about how this particular person got to where he was in Turkey politics and what what that said about how politics function in a place like Istanbul or a country like Turkey. Well, there's no no lack of uh, material. I think by the time this conversation goes out, we'll probably be out of date already. I mean, you've published two books so far, or written two books so far. Uh, one's called uh, Turkey's Ever-Present Past, Stories from Republican Turkish History. And the other one is uh, called Politics in Turkey, uh, Parties, Politicians and the Struggle for Power. And uh, these books are actually compiled largely from the blog post, I believe. And they're really explorations in modern Turkish history. I mean, each chapter is very lengthy, very deep, uh, published by uh, this small publisher in Istanbul called Libra. I mean, how did the idea or the offer to publish the these two books emerge. Well, honestly, when you write these, when you write blog posts uh, and put them up on the internet, it uh, it makes it very difficult to republish the things you've just written as a as a book, right? It's so it's already existing material, and so nonetheless, I still wanted to get the things I was writing out there in a form where they could reach university libraries, bookstores in in Istanbul, if not uh, if not broader. And uh, Libra was nice enough to let me publish these things I'd written and give me the chance to go back and. Uh, update them so that they're not as of the moment, right? So to take an example, in this most recent book I wrote about uh, various Turkish political parties, each of the blog posts was written around either election time or during some big events in recent Turkish history. And so the context, the way it's pitched as a blog is very much of that moment. The opportunity to publish them as a book allowed me to sit back down and say, well, okay, there's no way of completely taking them out of the moment from which they're written, but hopefully Hopefully, can I frame it in at least a way where someone reading this 10 years from now will still get something out of it about this party and the larger historical moment they're a part of and not be uh, completely uh, sucked into a time and place that is no longer relevant to them. 
uh, Libra's boss, I think, is uh, Rifat Bali. He's this uh, real elder statesman. Uh, I mean, what's his background? What's he like to work with? He's an expert on um, history of uh, Turkish minorities, especially he writes, uh, he's written several books about um, uh, Turkey's uh, Jewish minority. And and, uh, those books are particularly good for anyone interested in the topic. And he's also written uh, some very interesting books I've read over the years about um, the place of Turkey's uh, Donme population. And Donme are uh, Jews from Salonika who converted to Islam 300 years ago. And then when the Ottoman Empire was, was collapsing in areas like Salonika, were being taken over by other countries came to Istanbul and resettled and started their lives here. And so you have these communities of uh, uh, Donme in areas like Shishli now, for example. And they're, you know, because it's a close-knit community, there's always conspiracy theories floating around about them. And uh, Rifat has uh, some very good work, for example, just talking about the conspiracy theories, the conspiratorial thinking directed at some of these uh, populations, be they Donme, who are, you know, Muslims with Jewish heritage or Turkey's Jewish population. He's very good at that. And he's also very good at publishing um, uh, archival materials such as uh, consul- American consular reports that report on Turkey during, uh, say, like, like the 1920s or the 1940s or 50s. Uh, so he does a very good job, I think, of getting material out there that is of interest, but it's very hard to find a large publisher that would be willing to publish something of this specificity. So I, I, I like that about him, and I like the fact that he's willing to do to publish my things as well, since I feel they have the same problem sometimes of being very specific. Specific, you know, for people who are really interested in Turkey, not in a broad sense, but in a very narrow sense with a lot of detail. Now, one of the things I like about your blog and about the two books is how there isn't this big focus on Erdogan. Uh, and it's actually something that I also try to keep a bit in check on this podcast, because obviously a lot of your work actually goes back decades. So he wasn't really on the scene, but a lot of your work is addressing stories on the margins that sort of also uh, reflect on this wider on, on wider issues. Is that a deliberate thing on your part to kind of not sideline Erdogan, but to not focus on him? And if so, why? Certainly. I think it would be um, silly to say that Erdogan is not the most important figure in Turkish politics. That's self-evident, right? But at the same time, that only gets you so far. If we we say that Erdogan's the most important politician in Turkey, that means he's the most important person in Turkey who's able to deal with the different competing currents in Turkish politics. So the real question, I think, the more interesting question is, what are these different competing currents that he is able to play off against one another? that he's able to make use of for himself. And understanding those, I think, helps you understand what's going on in Turkish politics much better than just focusing on this one person and what he's really thinking or what his plans of the moment are. And I think it gives you a deeper appreciation, too. One of the biggest changes that I've seen in the last decade of uh, Turkish politics is that Erdogan's developed a, a rhetoric of Turkish nationalism that wasn't there as strongly when he started out. And so we can look at Erdogan, we can talk about how he's doing this or why he's doing this. But I think the more interesting question then is, what is Turkish nationalism? What is the heritage of it? Which politicians have represented Turkish nationalism on the political scene historically? And how does it maybe Erdogan relate to some of those politicians and how do they relate to him? I think when you start looking at it that way, it becomes a much more interesting story you're telling rather than just hearing about one figure and his ideas and his life. Because again, he ha- he's just one person and politics in Turkey and everywhere consists of such a larger range of people.
Yeah, and it's also, I suppose, a, a bit of a difficult balancing act as well because, uh, of course, he's really, as you say, more important than ever these days. And uh, so while we're acknowledging this complexity, in many ways, the national political game is really just focused on the presidency now. The media coverage is completely focused on what he does, what he says. It, it's funny when you see like every single word that Erdogan says becomes news. And it's a bit silly, really, to, to think in that way. But at the same time, there's no way to do it any other way because everything that he does say is newsworthy worthy because he you know is the man at the moment and uh i don't know it's a paradox really how to strike that balance that's true but i, st I still think that to, again to me and I, I i would like to think to other people too the interesting question is if we accept that erdogan's every word does have this significance on people's lives and on turkish politics in general that's fine but even though power has become more centralized in the presidency in turkey the presidency is, isn't just one person. It's a series of advisors. It's a series of networks around him. And, and I, and I don't mean this in a, in terms of looking at, oh, well, here's this, here's this business connection or here's this, uh, person seeking, uh, financial gain or political power necessarily. I also mean you have many people around him, all of whom come to the jobs they have with histories behind them, life experiences behind them that shape their particular goals and particular visions, the advice that they're giving him. And I think that looking at those people, for example, would be valuable for, uh, for someone to go and do. So as the president, he has had created a, a set of advisors that advise him directly cutting out uh, parliament, the parliament more than previously. It would be very interesting to look more closely at those advisors, for example, and see who these people are. Because to me, that's the most interesting question is the way that individual people try to push forward their particular agendas and how they do it in this context of a very powerful president. And to me, that's the question that is actually more fascinating to reflect on because very few of us are ever going to be in a position where we're the president of Turkey, but many of us are in positions where we're challenged to balance our personal ideas with a larger structure. And that tension there is, I think, the interesting story. And so I, I like to see when people look at that rather than just the one guy at the top. Uh, there's an observation you make in the book about Erdogan back in 2012, uh, quote, nitpicking, issuing judgments and politicizing areas of life that people had not understood to be loaded with political meaning. And I highlight that because it does seem to me to get to a kind of in essential truth, really, about his kind of politics. Because on the one hand, you have this kind of brand of populist uh, nationalist Islamism talk about, you know, the authentic nation and the real people. But at the same time, you do have this urgent desire to politicize almost every area of life, you know. So even innocent old Yeshu Cham films suddenly become political footballs or, you know, interpreted in a particular ideological way. And these things. Things, once upon a time, people just didn't think about them at all. But now all of a sudden they become symbolic, perhaps as a result of this um, political rhetoric. I mean, in a way, it's almost um, it's almost self-defeating. Like if they were so self-evidently, you know, the true representatives of the nation, they'd just have to take the back seat and let sort of nature, nature take its course. You know, it wouldn't have to politicize so many things. I don't know, perhaps that actually speaks to a profound um, anxiety, really, at the, at the heart of that style of politics, you know. Well, to, t to take that quote you use, I would put it a little bit differently, though. Turkey is a country where things are highly politicized and always have been, right? If you think back to the 1970s, let's say, in the clash between left and right, one of the classic examples people always mention is that what type of mustache you had or could get you uh, killed, right? So it's not that people's lives weren't politicized 
previous to Erdogan and his government, I think what's cha- what's changed and what created a lot of resentment, especially in the period leading up to Gezi Park, I think you heard people, you saw people getting more and more frustrated, is, is that not only did you have a change in who had political power in Turkey, but as you're saying, there was now an effort to achieve cultural dominance as well. And what this did was it meant that Erdo- Erdogan and, and his larger movement were picking fights about things that people had taken to be settled matters, right? And so things that people took to be normal aspects of their daily lives that were not political, they were just common sense that things are this way. And I think the tension you saw is that Erdogan was picking on on things that were previously seen as settled, and suddenly they were becoming unsettled again in Turkish politics. And this could be the way people dress. It could be the things that were acceptable on television. A, a good example of this might be Erdogan uh, criticized that show uh, Magnificent Century back when it was on, and he said, "Oh, there's too much uh, court politics. Uh, there should there should be more uh, of the of Suleiman out conquering, being on horseback, fighting." And that's all well and good, but what he's really doing there is he is calling into question what you can show on television, right? That television could be a space where you have romantic plot lines, where you have a lot of uh, soap opera-ish qualities. Many people took this to be a natural thing that tur- Turkey, uh, that television in Turkey was a, a place where you could have all this type of stuff. And Erdogan was suggesting, no, television is should be a different way. And this, I think, again, unsettled people because they had not seen this as an area of their lives that would suddenly become a sphere of political content station. But the reality, of course, is, is that it always had been. It was just suddenly becoming clearer that it had been to people who had not thought of it that way. <laughs> I, I imagine that Erdogan, many people who voted for Erdogan, though, had always perceived television to be a place where politics was being played out, and they probably saw themselves as not on the dominant side of it. Now, one of the uh, one of the chapters, one of the blog posts, is uh, is about Mustafa Saragu. Uh, you mentioned him before. He had a, a little comeback in the recent local election, not a very successful one, and he's sort of last year's man, really. Was once a prominent name in the uh, in the CHP, uh, and he was actually their Istanbul mayoral candidate in 2014. But he uh, he's he's had this uh, political career going back to the 70s, really. But the reason I like uh, that chapter, that post, is that uh, through that one character, uh, you're actually able to kind of freewheel really, and taking a lot of other interesting issues. And it's a good reminder, I suppose, that despite deep ideological polarization over the years, it's taken different forms. You know, party politics has largely been about factions, individual interests, group interests, uh, clientelistic relations, and uh, often, despite the really harsh ideological rhetoric on the surface, ideology has actually come second in the political horse race. Really, it's been about individuals grouping people around them and somehow forging a shared interest and uh, developing uh, a political narrative in that sense. And that's really been the game in Turkey, and to an extent it still is, I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean, I find Saragol fascinating because on the one hand, he was an incredibly successful political figure when he was winning elections. And now that he's out of power and without the ability to distribute uh, goods to his uh, allies, he's not he's not much of a figure on the political scene anymore. And yet what, dr- what draws me t- to him is because he's he takes these things you mentioned, he takes these aspects of Turkish politics and uh, takes most of them to extremes. He's known for uh, his glad handing approach, how He'd go to he'd go to funerals, holiday celebrations, ethnic cultural events in uh, Shishli when he was mayor. 
there's rumors swirl around him about various uh, forms of corruption, um, getting apartments in, in new buildings being built, things like that. Uh, he was constantly getting into fights with people, whether in parliament or at events he was attending. He, he was constantly punching people or his security detail was punching people. So he's a very colorful character, right? On that level alone, I think he's uh, he was fun to think about. But beyond that, he has been in politics for a very long time, and he hasn't been in politics during a period where the party he's part of, or at least the movement he's part of, the center-left, has gone through a lot of changes and challenges. When he entered into politics in the early 70s, the center-left actually seemed like it was becoming dominant. It was winning elec- it was winning elections in 73 and 77, and it was uh, its leader, Belent Edgevit, was associated with uh, success in, in Cyprus campaign. So it seemed, you know, it seemed like uh, there was potential there. And yet you have a guy like Saragul who came in as a young man when this party is successful. And then he's, he's really coming of political age, right when that success completely evaporates. You have the coup in 1980, you have the um, Republican People's Party, CHP, uh, closed, and you have a period of almost a decade where that sort of politics isn't even allowed anymore. And the political system's entirely reconfigured. And you have these new figures, uh, such as uh, Turgut Ozal, the president, the prime minister and president during those years, come to the fore, who are creating these new coalitions that really pick from both right and left and bring them together in this, let's, we could say neoliberal, we could say just business-friendly type politics that also brings in religion, which becomes dominant. So you have these new political coalitions being created. So you find yourself asking, how does a person like Saragul, who entered politics when it seemed like it was going to be one way, how does he adapt himself to this totally new political environment? And how does he emerge from it? And to me, that's fascinating. His answer was to make a lot of money in business, make connections, uh, build up a political following, and then, you know, move his way up through uh, municipal politics in Shishli. You can see the same pattern in different ways with the current uh, mayor, Imamalu, who, again, built up his political following in Biliktuzu, became mayor there, and then sought even higher office. I, th- I think looking at people in this way, looking at how they move through politics and how their own development is, is reflected in the the politics developing. I think that's a very useful way of grappling with some of the issues. So I come back to it again and again. And reading about these decades, I was also reminded that this was an era when, you know, old fashioned corruption scandals could bring down politicians. Uh, and it led to a fair degree of political chaos, really, and a great deal of instability. But at least there was some kind of accountability. Now things have swung completely the other way. Uh, there's a great deal of stability, let's say, in, in terms of the government, but less accountability. The media has been completely defanged and, you know, it doesn't have that power that it once did. I don't know. It's almost impossible to imagine a, an old-fashioned corruption scandal bringing down anybody. It just seems like the landscape's completely changed now. We've gone from this, you know, the extreme case of the 90s, for example, when scandals were happening all over the place and there was just complete chaos in Ankara with so many different governments and coalitions. And now this era is almost a reaction against that uh, period of great instability that had serious economic uh, consequences as well. 
Yeah, I, I would agree. And I'd, I'd give you an example that I think is very telling uh, fr- from the book. When uh, Benali Yildirim, uh, the, the losing uh, candidate for mayor in this recent election, when he first was, a, uh, was elected and became a minister in um, 2002, I suppose, he was the minister of transportation. And right when he came in, right when he became a minister of transportation in those first year or so, there were some high-speed rail crashes with, uh, high, bot- with high death counts. And this is... Pretty precisely the type of thing that you might have seen lead to someone being kicked out of their position in an earlier era, right? Uh, But that's not what happened, because immediately these accidents happened, and immediately, yeah, newspapers, opposition parties were all calling for investigations, calling, you know, perhaps for him to resign, perhaps for the guy he'd, you know, his friend who was in charge of the railways to resign. And instead of him resigning, or instead of immediately replacing the head of the railroads, uh, you know, the, the newly elected um, AKP, they dug their heels in and saw this not as a challenge to a specific minister's competence or a specific uh, minister's appointee's competence. They saw it as part of a larger uh, attempt to just destabilize the government, right? And I think that type of example, even in the early years of the AKP, I think that actually suggests the uh, trend that's happened since, which is that any criticism is perceived not as a, a criticism of competence in a specific area, but rather a much larger attempt to just destabilize the government as a whole. And so the attitude it is not to sacrifice this or that minister, this or that functionary, but to resist the criticism wholeheartedly because it's really part of a larger attack, which must be resisted at all costs. So even early on, I think you can see the inklings of what you're describing as this new way in which scandal uh, plays out in Turkish politics and in which the government reacts to it. And uh, we're in the middle seemingly interminably uh, of this systemic change where there's a gradual shift towards an executive presidential system and uh, we're talking a lot about party politics here a lot of your work focuses on party politics and the importance of parties as institutions really shaping contemporary political life in Turkey but with this new presidential system there's a sense that basically parliament is completely sidelined and significantly downgraded it's probably a more prestigious position to be a mayor of a big city than it is to be a minister, for example. MPs really don't have much clout at all. I don't know, Parliament, which has been really the site of so much political drama in, in Turkish political history, is now almost a sort of sideshow that doesn't have any significance at all anymore. I mean, what do you? how do you read this new area? Do you think it's a big shift from one system to the next, or do you see it as part of a continuum that uh, is still recognisable as being the same system? I think I would tend to agree with your your description of it. But again, my tendency when I'm thinking about something like this is not to say, therefore, parliament is not worth thinking about. But to me, what's interesting is the people who are in parliament now, who are in these positions that no longer have the prestige or the power of that they had even five years ago. What are they trying to get out of being a parliamentarian? What are they doing? So to, to you know, I'd be int- I'd be very interested to pick a uh, pick a member of parliament and just trade 
embrace what it is they choose to speak about, what type of um, legislative committees they choose to sit on, uh, what they say to their constituents when they do go back and make a speech in their in their province. Because to me, looking at that person's choices they're making still does tell you a lot about what it means to practice politics in Turkey. It's a very different story. You're not really you're not necessarily tracing where the power is, but you're asking a different set of questions, right? You're asking what happens to an institution when the power does move elsewhere? How does the function change? And I think that remains an actually interesting question for people to think about, even if it is true that that is not where the, the, the locus of decision making now resides. Uh, now, you've obviously written on a vast array of issues, talking mostly about politics here, but there's also cultural issues. Uh, one of the chapters in the book, I think, is about uh, Yilmaz Güney, uh, the film director of the 70s and 80s. Uh, you also talk about state broadcaster TRT in the 70s and the kind of political struggles around it. Uh, there's the Kurdish question, women's rights. There's such a vast uh, array of issues that uh, that you cover. I mean, it's probably an impossible question, but is there a kind of single thread or theme that you think knits all your work together? Is there a, an overarching theme or pattern to contemporary Turkish history that you've uh, identified or that you think is a persistent thing that you that may not immediately be obvious on the surface, but is also kind of reflected in your work? I, t- I t- tend to think that biography is what knits almost everything I've written together. Almost every piece is focused on a particular person or perhaps the uh, uh, the rivalry between a few people. Uh, biography, I think, is what's most interesting for me because as, as someone who studies Turkey, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm currently getting my PhD in Turkish history. You find that so much of what's written about Turkey is sociological or political science-oriented in its thinking, in the sense that it comes up with broad theories and talks about how those theories express themselves, and people fall away. Besides maybe uh, biographies of Ataturk, there's no English-language biographies of most of the major figures in Turkish political history, for example. And the ones that are are very uh, slight in, in size and scope. I, I find that to be uh, uh, to the detriment of thinking about Turkey, because I what it does is it marginalizes individual experiences of these larger scale phenomenon that we attribute to Turkey. So if we say that Turkey has had issues of religion and, sec- and secularism over the years, that's all well and good. But who, who, who are the people whose lives have actually embodied those, uh, those clashes and those challenges, right? I think it's much more interesting to, to pick a particular person whose life exemplifies some of those larger themes than it is to just talk about the larger themes. So in each of those uh, examples you gave, like let's take Yilmaz Gunay, for example. Here's a you know here's an individual person who's involved in the film industry, but he's involved in the film industry at a particular point in Turkish history where politics is opening up and there's these new uh, left-wing currents, Kurdish nationalist currents, all these different things that he's having to interact with and having to shape himself in reaction to, right? And I think following his life really illuminates what it actually meant that these political openings were happening. Too often I'll, you'll just see an account of the 1960s or 70s where it talks about the larger scale processes and doesn't focus on a few exemplars of these processes. Like Yilmaz Güney, like uh, Deniz Gezmiş, 
like um, Ismail Jem, the uh, head of TRT during the 70s for a while. All these people, their lives express these larger currents. And I think by following their lives, you get a more immediate sense of what it really meant to experience these larger sociological processes. That was Ruben Silverman. Many thanks to him. Do check out his website, rubensilverman.wordpress.com, if you haven't already. It's a real goldmine of interesting, well-researched material that if you're not careful, you can really lose yourself in. Remember to consider signing up as a Turkey Book Talk member if you enjoy the podcast and want to help support it. Membership gives you access to that special 35% discount on Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview as it's published. Transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me covering Turkish history, politics, literature and various other things. To become a member and get all that, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's official Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like the Facebook page to stay fully updated with new episodes. And you can send any recommendations, feedback, or abuse to William John Armstrong at gmail.com. But until the next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. <laughs> Thank you.